0: Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, home of the modern whitetail hunter. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to
1: Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon. And this week on the show, I'm joined by Terry Drury to discuss his years-long journey dealing with buck fever, target panic, and errant shots, and how he's overcome these challenges to find deer hunting success. All right, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by First Light. And today we are wrapping up shooting month. All July, we've been talking about how to become a more accurate and effective shot at deer so that 2022 or whatever year this is that you're listening to can be your best shooting year ever. At least that's my goal for myself. I want this year to be my best shooting year ever. I want good, clean, perfect shots. I don't want any questions. I want to know exactly what happened. I want to know I was in control and that I put that arrow or that bullet where it's got to be. That's my goal. And so over these past few weeks, I've been talking to all sorts of folks about how they do that. Some of the very best out there, some of the best archers, best gun hunters, best bow hunters, folks like Taylor Chamberlain, Spencer Newharth, Jordan Sillers, Randy Almer, and some really good stuff from guys who get it done. But I also thought, It could be useful to learn and to hear from someone who has struggled, right? Because I struggle. I bet you've had struggles too, whether that be with target panic or buck fever or whatever way your shooting mishaps show up. I'm sure you've had something happen. How do we deal with that? How do we deal with the tough times? How do we deal with the pressure and anxiety that comes from having a few bad hits or a miss, how do we move on from that and get better? I wanted to talk to someone who has really dealt with that and dealt with it in a big way and in a public way. And the best person I could think of was Mr. Terry Drury, one of the co-founders of Drury Outdoors, an incredible deer hunter, a great guy, but someone who has you know, publicly You know, shown some of his mishaps. He's had plenty of misses and bad hits and things like that along the way that we've all been able to see on their many, many different shows and videos and films over the years. He's someone who has had to publicly deal with that and figure it out and get better and keep going. And I think there's a lot we can learn from him. And that's what we wanted to discuss today. And Terry was gracious enough, kind enough, uh, open enough to be willing to discuss this, discuss some tough times discuss some tough situations and how he's pushed through it and how he's gotten better. So if you have ever dealt with target panic, with bad shots, with buck fever, with I don't know what you want to call it, but if you've ever struggled, I think you'll be able to relate to Terry and I think you'll be able to learn something from this one. So I'm excited for you to listen and I really do hope that it's going to help you out. So that's what's in store. I want to give you a couple quick reminders though before we get into this Uh, Number one, remember, I told you guys last week that I'm coming up with weekly, sorry, monthly gear recommendations from the Meat Eater store. I've got those right now. If you head to the Wired Hunt website, you can just go to wiredhunt.com or go to the Meat Eater and navigate to the Wired Hunt website there. You'll see my four shooting month recommendations. I've got a recommended target, recommended shirt for summertime shooting and scouting, all that, uh, recommended uh, shooting bags. If you're going to be trying to sight in and shoot with your firearm here soon. And then finally the vortex impact 1000 is 15% off on our store right now. That was one of my recommendations too. So be sure to check that out. I'll continue throwing up some different ideas over the course of the season. Uh, something that might be helpful if you're in the market for any of those things. So that is one reminder. The other thing, head on over to Instagram and follow me at wired hunt. If you want to see what's going on in my world as I really start doubling down on preparations for this upcoming whitetail season. And I've even started a TikTok. I don't really like TikTok, but you gotta be there. So I'm gonna be posting more on there as well. So if you are a TikToker, look for Mark Kenyon on there and you will be able to follow along with some of my video exploits that I'll be sharing this coming season too. So uh holy smokes, guys. It's almost the end of summer. Hunting season's almost here. So I really hope you're out there shooting. And I hope my conversation with Terry Drury can help you as you do that. So without further ado, let's get into it. All right, with me back on the show is Mr. Terry Drury himself. Terry, welcome back. Well, thank you, Mark. I always
2: enjoy this. You and I don't get to catch up near often enough. So uh, I'm looking forward to speaking to you about a number of different topics.
1: Yeah, me too. I, I really appreciate it. I always enjoy our, our catch-ups as well. and and this one, Terry, is going to be, I think, particularly helpful, but also a little bit of a doozy. <laughs> so I hope, you'll, I hope you'll bear with me on this topic today. But it's a, it's a personal topic for me as well, because we're, we're in the midst of shooting month here on the podcast. And okay. I'm doing this because I have kind of been going through a rough shooting spell myself. Uh, had one of my worst seasons last year that I can remember. Um, and have kind of shared the pub- publicly what 's gone right what 's gone wrong, and coming out of a, a number of misses and bad hits last year i I decided that my really my main goal in twenty twenty two is just shooting just getting better like i don't, i don 't care if I shoot three bucks or a big buck or that one buck i don 't care about any of that this year. I just want to have good shots if that means I shoot one doe perfectly, that would be a success for me this year so that is why this whole month has been focused on this topic and, and hopefully helping other people in the same boat. And I got to thinking, the way we should wrap this series is with someone who has struggled with the same things that I've struggled with and, and worked through it. And you tell me if I'm right about this, but from stuff I've seen and heard, it seems like you've had your share of struggles when it comes to shooting too. Is that is that an accurate assessment? You know
2: why it appears that way? Because they show all of my mishaps, but they never show any marks. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that, 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 How's that happen? <laughs> there, there's, some, there's some truth in that, really. But with that being said, absolutely, you know, and I, the way I look at that, Mark, was I've never, ever be, been embarrassed to say, hey, I made an errand shot or I had a difficulty making a shot or whatever it may be. Because if you've hunted any length of time at all, you're going to go through some of those ups and downs. Not everyone is perfect. Now, I know there's a lot of guys out there that think they're perfect, but it yeah. don't always work like that and karma karma is a bitch, if you will. <laughs> because it will it will come back and bite you in the tail yeah. end. I, I, we've had those ups and downs, and just about the time you think you're getting really really good at it, mother nature has a way of humbling you. And uh, you know, the deer doesn't always read the script. So we we try to always show what's happening in real life and we want to make sure that everybody understands that It's easy to critique someone else, you know, to sit back in an armchair and say, man, that was a bad shot or or Mm -hmm. he made an errant shot. But it's unless you're in that position and you're standing in those boots, sometimes it's it's easy to critique. It's another thing to make make that shot. And and I'm not embarrassed at all to say we we've had our our difficulties. We've had our ups and downs.
1: Yeah. Was it a was it a like uh, what am I trying to say here? Was it tempting to hide some of those things and to not show them at all? And then did you make like a active decision to say, you know what, I know people are going to give me a hard time about this. I know I'm going to get some crap, but I think it's actually helpful for people. I mean, was that a thing that you had to talk about and think about over the years?
2: Absolutely. You know, when you're younger and you're just getting into the sport and, and you're in front of a camera, there's sometimes there's an added pressure on you that you don't you don't, uh, even think about. And and if you're by yourself and you're hunting in the timber and you, you launch an arrow and you miss the deer, you shoot under his belly, or over his back, nobody knows about it. Nor do you have to tell anyone with us, everybody knows about it and there is no hiding. So yes, there were times where you didn't want to show it because your pride and your ego and everything gets in the way, particularly if you're an archer. I mean, that's the pride is making the perfect shot each and every time and from an ethical standpoint, that's exactly why we're there. We're wanting to make that double long or heart shot. Each and every shot you want, you know, pinpoint accuracy. But it doesn't always happen that way. And, you know, whether you drop your bow arm or whether you anchored incorrectly or whether your, your stance wasn't correct, some of those things happen in the heat of the moment. And uh, the last thing you want to do is share it with somebody and, and show that you're not uh, as good as you would like to be. And boy, your pride really, really gets hurt. It gets bruised. Your ego gets bruised early on. And then after you've been through the motions for many, many decades, you're okay with saying, you know what, I've killed several hundred deer and I've made great shots on a lot of them, but once in a while things happen and you, you've got to share it so that other people can understand they're not alone. They're not the only one that has issues and has problems, uh, and being willing to share and hopefully someone else will learn from your mistakes. That's really what we've always been all about, was making sure that somebody else could learn by one of our mistakes.
1: Yeah. So uh, speaking of bruised pride, and I hate to do this, but can we dig up some skeletons from the closet or s- some long-lost memories that you maybe shoved away and hoped not to have to think back on, Terry? Is there is there any errant shot, any mistake, any situation like this that stands out over your decades hunting as the most painful or the most eye-opening or the most impactful in some way was is there any one story that you can think back on that sticks out to you still for any one reason or another how much time you got
2: (laughs) (laughs) there there are a couple yeah mr christmas was one in particular that was a deer that i was really 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 hunting for Uh, several years and he was a big deer. He was a two and, and, uh, shot over him and just didn't get him dead. Rushed the shot. A doe was, uh, in front of him and she squirted on past us, you know, and then as she squirted on past and he squirted on past and stopping him and then not settling in and rushing the shot just cost me a really, really big deer. Uh, and within five minutes after that, I killed another really nice deer that was following him, but, uh that wasn't exactly the the script you know i wanted to kill mr christmas and had dedicated a lot of years to killing him and so that was that was the maybe the first and foremost that comes to mind another one was a giant giant eight point over in pike county illinois that a neighbor ended up killing the following year and i think he was in the 180s as a as an eight the year yeah. that i missed him i think he was in the high 60s low 70s but there too uh, knew who he was and got rattled and, and shot over the top of him, but I, I didn't settle in like I should have rushed the shot. You always feel like there's not enough time to yeah. settle. And, uh, oftentimes there isn't much time to settle it, depending on where you're hunting and how skittish the deer are and whether they typically move during daylight or not. Uh, some of those elements all factor into it. And particularly if it's a deer, you know, and you're after man, oh man, it's, it's hard to settle in sometimes.
1: Yeah. So if you were to look back over your your journey as a deer hunter and think through all the ups and downs, is there a period of your hunting career where you had the worst struggles? Like is there a period where like this was your low point where you had a year or 5 years or a chunk of time where you really struggled and then you came out of it or you've improved a little bit? Does any kind of time period stand out as like oh this was the worst of this and there was, I guess what I'm trying to get at is I'm, I'm curious to understand, like, what did the lowest point look like for you? Like, what, what did those struggles look like? What was going wrong? Um, how did you diagnose that low point? If there is, maybe there's just sporadic little bits over the whole time. I'm not sure what it was for you, but does anything like that stand out?
2: Oh, yeah. It lasted about a decade, if I remember. Right.
1: Right. So what did that look we like? Had-
2: no, it, it was, uh, I went through one season that I can remember that was, I had target panic so bad and and it was from shooting a lot, I guess. I, I don't know how you can get target panic after you've been shooting for 25 or 30 years, but I did, I went through a season and man, oh man, it was, it was the doldrums. I just could not get out of it. And, uh, you know, I talked to, uh, um, some of the best archers in the world and different professionals on how do you get over or get rid of target panic and it's a mind i don't know what it is or some trigger in your brain but the moment that 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 target came into view man you were launching the the trigger and it yeah. just everybody tried different you know tried different releases and this that and the other and and uh i finally ended up shooting my way through it but boy oh boy i had to shoot and shoot and shoot and shoot and shoot and i was i'm so hard headed number one and and <laughs> determined that i wasn't about to let it get the best of me and i just kept plugging and kept shooting and grinding and scratching and clawing. And I'm talking thousands of rounds through a bow. Now it it took me a while to get over it, but I finally got through it and I I don't know what causes it, nor do I have any resolution for anyone in the future because it's something that everybody's got a different way to get over it and get past it. And, uh, I, I don't know what works for any individual that that I can relate to and say, hey, here's here's how to get over it. There's just no answer, but the only way I can tell you, I literally shot until I wore myself out, and I, I shot my way through it.
1: And was that just shooting in the backyard, or did you do uh, any uh, higher stakes? I mean, I know one thing people talk about is try to practice more and shoot more in high pressure situations. So you're at least learning how to better handle that. I mean, was there some element to that? Did you shoot with friends? Did you shoot tournaments did you was it just shooting more deer and just shooting lots of does like i know you do on your missouri farm does that help at all
2: this I, majority of it was during the summer months so i was i was shooting a lot of flat footed there in the driveway and I, I have a you know i had a tree stand on the side of a tree and i'd be three foot up six foot up whatever and shooting out of a tree stand sometimes i'd get the you know get the uh targets out and i have have the deer in the yard and i went through all that i tried it all i tried all those methods and There wasn't much helping to be quite honest, but I ended up just plugging, uh, at a target and I just continued plugging one of the, one of the, uh, the guys, one of the professional archers said, Hey, shoot at a pie plate, a bigger, shoot at a bigger target. Don't try and shoot at something so small. And then another guy said, shoot with your eyes closed and this, that, and the other. So I I did all that. But at at the end of the day, I just kept shooting and kept shooting and kept shooting. Most of that was flat footed on a driveway until I finally worked my way through it. And it was just a matter of settling in and not, not never putting my finger on the trigger, if you will. A lot of guys use back tension and so on and yeah. so forth, but they say that that will cure it as well, or thumb release. but I just I would draw and hold on and just look at the target and not and not not punch it, not ever release the trigger, never release the arrow. And I just did that over and over and over, thousand one, one thousand two, one thousand three, you know, and those little tricks. But boy boy, it it, it was painful.
1: Yeah, I uh, I can relate. I mean, that's that's been exactly my issue. As soon as that pins on the vital area, I it's it's gone. The arrow's just been off. I've I've had a hard time holding on and taking those extra seconds. So I'm I'm dealing with the same thing right now myself, and I'm thinking think it's getting better with my new regimen this year. But uh, you know, that's all going to be tested here in a month or two once the season starts. So what I.
2: Mark, I will say that shooting those does makes a big, big difference. I, I will admit, and I shoot a lot of them, trust me, but it does help. It really does help. If you get a doe at 10 or 12 yards or you get one at 15 yards and you know, she's dead when she walks in there and you can settle in, uh, and take your time or just come to full draw and don't shoot. That's, that's another option is come to full draw and just do not shoot. Never, never shoot the deer release it, lay back, you know, let back down. Those those little tricks actually work about as well as anything to be quite honest.
1: Yeah. Um so speaking of that then, when you have a situation like that, a does coming in or, or any deer for that matter, what does your shot process look like now? Now that you've you've been practicing to get through that target pan to be able to hold on to the arrow without releasing it too soon, like what does your whole process from beginning to end look like as, as a deer is coming into range and you realize in your head, okay, I'm going to shoot this deer. What, what are the steps that follow?
2: My, my primary number one focus is either broad or quartering away. So I'm going to wait and wait and wait and wait until she gives you the shot. And Mark, Mark was really, Mark Drury was the one that, uh, instilled this in both of us many, many years ago. And that's not coming to full draw until you're ready to shoot them. So that's a big, big plus when she gets either broad or quartering away, meaning they're coming right at you. Just let them walk past you or let them get broadside and then come to full draw. I see it all the time where guys get hung out to dry and they take a quartering two shot because they draw too soon. And I'd say that's probably the number one mistake that most people make. And we used to make it as well. I did it many, many, many decades ago where I I just couldn't wait to get to full draw. Well, the, the trick is, is not coming to full draw until you're ready to kill them. And you're ready to kill them when you know they're in your roundhouse and you go, okay, dead. Well, what is that? That's maybe 30 yards for some guys, might be 40 yards for others, maybe 20 yards. The older I get, and the less poundage I pull. I, I want that circle to be pretty doggone small, pretty tight. And when they get into under 20, you go, okay, dead. So now what? Then the next step is go, okay, I'm going to wait till they're broad. And, you know, when they're feeding, if it's early season or late season, they're feeding, they're going to give you a shot. You just have to be patient. And sometimes it takes a little while before they, you know, their nose is down and they're eating clover or, or they might be in soybeans or whatever, but they're eventually going to give you a, 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 a great shot, a broadside. So then the patience comes into effect. And I'm always looking forward. If I'm in the timber, I'm looking ahead at, at these openings. Where's my next window? Where can I draw? And then where am I going to shoot? You know, so there's a whole regimen of things that you go through in your brain, but I, in the timber, I'm always looking ahead as to where I'm going to kill the deer at.
1: Okay. Now that deer steps into that lane or it stops, gives you that broadside, and now you're going to draw your bow. Can you can you walk me through what goes through your mind as the, as the bow is drawn, as you settle in, as you do all the different things? Could you walk me through each piece of that?
2: Well, number one, I draw flat meaning I draw a level to make sure because I practice on a a flat surface typically, and then I'll get to an elevated position, but typically I draw a level so that my anchor is correct. I try to always draw my bow flat and level so that I anchor at the exact same spot. And then when I bend, I try to bend at the waist, which you're supposed to do, but I don't change my anchor point. It always stays in the exact same spot. And, and you kind of know the yardage once they get within 20. Uh, I always, like to say, Hey, I can shoot out to 30 with top pin. If you're only shooting one, a lot of guys you're using HHAs where they have to dial them in. But for the most part, these new bows nowadays shoot relatively flat. If you're pulling any poundage at all, and most guys can shoot one pin out to 30 yards. So if they get under 30, you're usually pretty doggone safe in your, you know, in your positioning. So once they get in that roundhouse, I make sure that I draw level. I make sure that I anchor correctly. I bend at the waist. And then you just try to settle that pin the best you can behind the shoulder uh, or depending on high lung, low lung, depending on how close they are, you're looking at that window. And then I'm always looking at the off leg, always, because the off leg will tell you if they're slightly quartering to or they're slightly quartering away. Sometimes you get lost in the shuffle or you can't see the forest through the trees because your eyes roll back in your head, particularly if if it's a big buck with Mm -hmm. a big rack sitting on his head and you lose track of where his shoulders are at. So watch for that off shoulder in lieu of the on shoulder. And that will always tell you if he's quartering to or quartering away.
1: Hmm. What about, I I know you mentioned, you know, working through target panic and learning to hold on without firing the arrow, but what about just simple buck fever and nerves? Uh, Does that, do do you still get impacted with that kind of thing?
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. I get as rattled on a doe, an adult doe, as I do a buck. I I don't know why, but I just do, because I know I'm going to kill her, I guess, number one, Mm -hmm. but I still get extremely nervous on, on an adult doe and and same way with a buck. And I guess the day I lose, that'll be the day I quit. Uh, we're, we're a little better now. And the fact with, with, you know, trail cameras and the way they've advanced, obviously, I don't know that we've ever shot a deer here on my farm that we didn't know. But sometimes if you know them, it's a little worse than if you didn't know them, you right. know, you get, you still get rattled, particularly if you, if you've got an idea who it was and you've been hunting four or five years and you're finally going to get an opportunity. The last thing you want to do is screw it up. Mm-hmm. You, so that's always, that's always an issue. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to back up one second on a deer. You, you mentioned a deer and I didn't, I didn't release an arrow at this deer, but it's one I will never, ever get back. And it was a monster up on Mark's farm in Iowa. I was bow hunting up there and uh, it was baby G. And uh, oh, a deer yeah. ended up, the neighbor ended up killing him, but I came to full draw on him and I couldn't, at that time, I didn't have lighted pins. I couldn't see. And, uh, I got within like 30 and then he got 28, 27. And then, and to make a long story short, I, I came to full draw twice on him. I came to full draw. I couldn't see my pins. I let down, I pulled back again, trying to find, and I, I took my pins above his back, trying to come back down and see his vitals. And I, I just couldn't do it. I couldn't see him. And it wasn't all that dark, but it was dark enough. I could not put a pin on him exactly for that yardage and so on and so forth. So uh, I had to let him walk away. I never released an arrow, but that was one I would, I would love to have back.
1: <laughs> now, when you look at that one, though, do you, wh- what's your takeaway lesson from that? Do you look at that as like, oh, that was, I should have found a way to take that shot? Or is part of you glad you didn't because it might have resulted in a bad shot because of the bad lighting?
2: Well, I will say this, it's the perils of filming and having, having a cameraman with you. I, we weren't communicating real well and, and I wasn't certain whether he could see him and when he, he was on him and this, that, and the other. So I was literally turning around and say, Ryan, you got to tell me, are you on this deer or not? (laughs) So I was more worried about the footage and I should have been worried about killing the deer in all reality. So I, I kind of let him get in and get out by worrying whether or not he had the footage of the deer come to find out he had him full frame, but I wish he'd have said something like I'm on him. <laughs>
1: yeah. So
2: if I'd have known that he was on him my, the outcome may have been different, but I, I, I can't say that for sure. But, um, I, I can't help but think if all I was worried about was killing him, the pretty good chance I'd have got an arrow in him, you know, because I would have just, concentrated a little harder. I'd had a little more time to get the pins above his back and bring it down into his vitals and this, that, and the other thing. But, uh, it, there was more to it than, than yeah. just killing him.
1: It brings up though, a, a an important topic. I think at least something I found, and you alluded to this already, but just how much buildup there is to these encounters and so much pressure we put on ourselves because we want this deer so bad, whether it's because we've hunted this same buck for four years or just because we, we, have worked so hard this summer and fall and we've sat 15 straight days or whatever it is, when that opportunity finally does come, it seems, it seems like life or death for you. Like you have to get this shot. At least that's how it's felt for me. I've had moments where it seems like I've given every single ounce of energy, blood, sweat, and tears to get to this moment. And then here's this buck coming in. And you know, there's one story I can think of from two or three years ago, maybe two years ago. Or the buck I'd been after for three years, you know, finally is coming into bow range, but he's back in this brush and I'm trying to find some little hole. And I've realized that if I kind of half kneel down, there's like a softball size hole and I'm leaning over and bending down. And in that crazy high stakes moment, it seemed in my head that I had to try. And then, you know, right afterwards I forced this horrible shot and missed the buck. And then after that you realize you know, what a stupid thing to do. Um, Why Mm -hmm. would I have done that? It could have been worse. I could have wounded him. I could have never found him. Um, So at least I missed. But have you ever had situations like that too, where you force something because of that high pressure and then you realize, wow, you know, it would have been so much better to just hold on to that arrow because of how much, how, how bad it ended up getting or how much worse it could have been. Or is that a thing you've dealt with too?
2: It, yes and and I would say that earlier in our career we probably fro- forced some errand shots that we should never have taken and I think some of that comes with experience meaning if you're a novice archer it's easy to make those mistakes and wish that you hadn't you always you can never get the arrow back but boy when you when you let it go you go oh my god why did I do why did I shoot there that was yeah. so stupid and I think as a novice hunter it's easy to do that and experience will will sometimes rectify that or cure that, but it takes a lot of archery shots and a lot of deer on the ground to get to get past that. And experience sure makes a difference, but yes, in answer to question, we certainly have done that. The, the big deer that I was talking about a while ago, to, to clarify that, when number one, I was hunting on Mark's farm and I knew the deer, I knew exactly who he was and I knew how big he was and I, I just didn't want to screw it up more than anything. I, I wanted to make sure that if I released an arrow at this deer, he was dead. That was my number one concern was making sure that I killed him. And, you know, when we when I wanted to talk to the camera guy and I said, if you're on him, you need to tell me, are you on him or not? You know, I was turned around looking at him and I let you get in on us, make a scrape. And the footage is really good. I, I just wish he'd have communicated a little sooner. And and I wasn't about to screw it up. So I literally let him let him get his butt to me and just walked dead away and I never, never released an arrow, but that was one that I wished I could have back. But one, I can say I was proud. I didn't, I didn't mess it up
1: either. You know? Yeah. That that seems like, like you said, one of those kinds of realizations that probably comes with time and experience that realizing sometimes the best shot is, is the shot never taken. Um, it's a hard pill to swallow. I imagine in a lot of cases, but sometimes it's the right call. I (laughs) had, I
2: had one guy, a, a buddy of ours, who just happens to be a PBR bull rider, and he called me and literally tongue-lashed me over the phone saying, what were you thinking? Why didn't you shoot that deer? <laughs> you know, after he saw the footage, he was really all over me. So I, I probably should have. I could have. I still should have maybe. But, uh, you know, I don't know. It's one of those damned if you do, damned if you don't kind of things. Yeah.
0: to the crickets so head over to land.com today to turn one day into today because trust me there's nothing quite like the feeling of standing on your own piece of earth
1: so so back to being you know in that shot sequence um you mentioned you still get rattled you still get excited um what do you do now to try to control that how do you try to control buck fever like in the field is it talking to yourself breathing is there is there any little trick or method you have to try to center yourself calm yourself get control of yourself in that moment i truly
2: believe that late season and early season those two where you know the deer are going to be moving a little bit slower kind of helps that process because you've got a little more time to lay an eyeball on them you've got a little more time to process the shot you've got a little more time to settle in when they're not running rampant through the timber uh like you might see during the rut so i think given the time to settle down and settle calm your nerves just a little bit and breathe if you will a lot of the baseball players all say that you've got to breathe you know jim Tomey, one of the greatest home run hitters of all time is tremendous at settling in and settling down and preparing for a shot but he's been on some of the biggest stages you know throughout his career and that's what majority of those guys will tell you. It's, it's just take time to breathe. Now, easier said than done. You might be breathing at 500 beats a minute, you know, but <laughs> yeah. And some guys may never get over it. I I've seen them all. And I mean, we've watched some really, really good big buck hunters that, that can make that shot with nerves of steel and ice water in their veins and then fall apart after the shot, you know? Uh, so I wished I had that ability. I would much rather have, ice water in my veins and fall apart after the shot than fall apart before the shot.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So when you, when a shot goes bad for you now, right? I know like you dealt with a a series of really, really significant struggles, but I I know stuff still has gone wrong in more recent years. What's, is there any common, uh, common factor nowadays? If, for example, I remember there was a hunt a few years ago, that buck dangers calling. Is there any kind of thing you can point your finger to now? Like if something goes wrong, it's this kind of thing these days? Is it random one-off things, or is it a buck fever moment still? What, what's your situation today, I guess, is what I'm getting at?
2: You know, that one's a, a, a really, really good point, and I'll tell you why. I was hunting there, too. I was hunting on Mark's farm, and I was in a blind that I had never sat before, and I wasn't comfortable sitting down or standing up. There was no in between, nor could I kneel down and get over the window. So there was one instance where everybody kind of, you know, gives you a hard time about hunting out of a blind. It's not easy shooting through a window. It just no. isn't. Uh, anybody that thinks it is needs to cut a hole in a in a cardboard box and try shooting through it at different different positions. It just isn't that easy. So I wished I'd have been a little more prepared and went into that blind sooner and figured out how high I needed to be or how low I needed to be. And I, it was partially from being my fault for not being prepared. So I was in between, I was crouching and, you know, trying to make sure that I didn't hit a window with a fletching or hit it with your, the other thing you got to worry about is hitting it with your limbs on your bow or your cam. And I was in a really, really awkward position. I wish I could do that one over again as well. It was just, uh, not being prepared a hundred percent and either standing up sitting down or kneeling down. It, there was no, I was in between all of that. I was crouched halfway down and, and had a terrible anchor, terrible anchor point. I, you might draw flat, but when you're crouching halfway down and you're, you, you know, it just wasn't, I didn't feel good. Should probably have never taken the
1: shot. Yeah. It looked like a tough situation. Um, so, so then tell me this, how do you handle the moments or in some cases, the days after a bad situation like that, because I know some people will miss a deer and then, you know, it, it breaks them. And for days they're so bummed out about it, or they hit a deer and they can't recover it. And they want to, they're done for the year or they're depressed for a week. Uh, how do you handle those situations? How do you get yourself out of it? How do you get your head right again?
2: That's one of the toughest things on the planet as an archer. I'll be honest. You, and I don't know that you ever truly get over those because we talked about pride and ego and your, your ego is hurt. It's self-inflicted and the only person you could blame is yourself. And man, oh man, those are really, really tough pills to swallow. And I don't know that you ever truly get over it. Here we are talking about, you know, hunts that happened decades ago. So it's, it's one of those things you never quite get over it. You always want to improve. And as an ethical archer or an ethical firearms hunter, you want to make the perfect shot each and every time. And the last thing you want to do is injure a deer. I mean, it's, I don't know, I, I, some you just never get over, but it's the old adage, you got to get back on the horse and ride it. Uh, but you tuck that away in your mind and you go, how can I learn from it? How can I improve? How can I be a better hunter? How can I be a better shot? And what do I need to go through? What steps, what regimen do I need to go through to make sure that doesn't happen again? And I, that's the only or the best advice I can give is to say, get back on a horse and and play that that scenario over in your mind over and over and over. How do I fix it? How can I get better?
1: Yeah. Do you have any, and I guess filming helps with this, but have you have you learned anything or do you have any process for kind of analyzing a shot, like diagnosing what went wrong because that for me it's always been so hard to look back and try to identify, you know, where did I go wrong, especially since in many of these cases I guess I guess I do know where it went wrong because I was rushing and rushing so much that I can't remember where the problem was. Uh but but, but for you, how do you go about trying to analyze what happened here? Where is my mistake? How do I get better? Like what does that look like in in the details for you? You
2: know, as readily available as you can lay something down on your phone nowadays, the best scenario you can possibly give yourself is to film yourself shooting out in your backyard and go through the motions and just see or have someone film you. But that is probably the best advice I can give. And, and we do have the luxury of having a cameraman uh, so we can slow-mo it and watch every single thing. Oh, I didn't anchor correctly. Or, you know what, I didn't uh, I didn't follow through. Or, oh, I dropped my bow arm, you know. Uh, oftentimes the deer is so close that you think it's a chip shot. First thing you do is release and you're looking before the arrows barely out of the, you know, out of the riser. So it's easy to drop your bow arm and not follow through. So, you know, obviously practice makes perfect. Pete, Pete Shepley with PSE used to say, you know, that's an adage. He goes, I like to say perfect practice makes perfect shooting. So being able to analyze your shot out in your backyard or on your driveway is one of the best ways to analyze it and look at it in slow-mo and say, doggone, I'm, I'm really not following through, or I'm really not anchoring the same way that I should be each and every time, or I'm dropping my bow arm, something terrible, you know? So I do believe that practice and practice perfect makes the right shot each and every time, but it's easy to say that it's a whole nother thing when you get in a tree stand. And I think that training your body, that regimen that you go through, you're going to let some of that, that, instinctive uh shooting if you will because your your body's going to take over that muscle memory you know if you do it enough times and you're repetitious about it and you do it the exact same way over and over and over and over and over in the heat of the moment your body's going to take over oftentimes the last thing you want to do is pick up your bow a week before the season and go out there and try and shoot a deer i mean it takes months of practice so that your muscle memory takes over in the heat of the moment
1: yeah what does that perfect practice Look like for you? Like what? What's the most important things you're doing? How much? How often? Is there anything unique that you add to that practice regimen to really simulate real world scenarios or anything like that?
2: Well, I kind of touched on this briefly earlier before we went on air here, but I'm a left handed shooter, but I'm right down so I have to work two or three times harder than everyone else to make a good shot. So no matter how many millions of rounds I may put through a a bow, I'm never, ever, ever going to be a a tremendous archer. I just, I'm not, unless I, unless I go back to shooting right-handed, I started 40 years ago shooting right-handed and I probably should have stayed that way because I'm right eye dominant, but I played baseball and I played football and golf and everything else I did left-handed and I write left-handed. So I became a left-handed archer and I shoot left-handed. And I've never ever shot a, a left handed gun. They're all right handed guns, the way they discharge if it's an automatic. But I've never ever shot a left handed firearms. But I shoot left handed. I write left handed. Everything I do is left handed. So to make a long story short, I practice two and three times longer, harder than probably everyone else has to because it's the wrong eyeball or the wrong set of hands, however you want to look at it. <laughs> so I have to, that, regiment, that regiment that I go through is I try to make sure that I that I draw flat. I'm trying to make sure that I anchor the exact same spot each and every time. I try to make sure that I don't drop my bow arm and then I may start with some bigger some bigger, you know, maybe uh not grapefruit, but baseball size early season. I'll go plunk, you know, a dozen 15-20 arrows, you know, and I start out with a little bit bigger pattern in the beginning, you know, in June and July and then as the season gets closer and I start one to two times a week and then and then I'll go to three times a week in July, and then I start shooting every day in August, and then twice a day in the latter part of August and September, morning and evening. So I refine that shooting, and I want that repetition to take over, like I mentioned. But I go from those bigger targets in the beginning of the summer to the, a dime or something a little smaller, you know, dime, penny, quarter, and try to try to hone that in so that you're, so that your group is much more consistent and it's much much tighter as the season gets closer. And then again, the repetition is is a big part of it. But it's shooting flat, anchoring the same way, and not dropping your bow arm and settling in, counting one thousand one, one thousand two, and the old figure eight, you know, that you go through. it. it uh, there's something to that, you know, when you look at it and you're looking at that target. So taking it to a smaller target is really really helpful as far as trying to refine your your group.
1: When you say the figure eight, are you just talking about floating your pin on the target or or what do you mean by that?
2: Yes. I I really have trouble keeping it on one spot for longer than a second or two. I find myself doing that figure eight. So uh, knowing when to release, I think is is a big, big part of it. Now, and I know those professional archers may all have different a different way of doing it. You know, those guys that can shoot at a hundred yards and and hit a quarter each time <laughs> Levi and, yeah. and Chris and some of those guys, they're, they're ridiculous. I mean, they're, <laughs> they're an anomaly when you think about it and you watch them, you go, Oh my God, I wish I could shoot like that. Well, mm-hmm. uh, not everybody can. It's just that simple. I don't care how long you practice or how hard you practice. You can become a better shot and you can become very, very proficient at it. But shooting like those guys, that's, that's, just unlike anything I've ever watched, watching those guys.
1: You know, that brings up an interesting question then, because you're right. There's there's some people that can shoot crazy far and insanely accurately, and those people usually you know, get a lot of press and a lot of people talk about them, and it's, and it's easy to see that and think, well, geez, if that guy's doing this, then I should be able to shoot at 70, or I should be able to <laughs> go out on my Western trip and shoot a pronghorn at 85, or gosh, I saw... <laughs> Lee Lakowski plugged that buck at 65 yards in his food plot. So, when I've got my biggest buck ever at 65 yards out in front of me, yeah, I could, I should do that. I, I got to believe there's some folks that see that kind of thing and then assume that, well, that's what I should be doing too. How, how do you, Terry, go about or how did you go about figuring out your own personal limits? How did you figure out what was the right kind of shot for you to take, the right maximum range? How do you figure that out? How do you go through that? Because I think that's an important part of this whole equation.
2: I, I do. I, I would agree with you there. I, th- I think
1: knowing your
2: roundhouse, and that's what I call it that that dead zone where if they get within that perimeter, you know they're dead. And I think confidence has a lot to do with that. Your shooting confidence and your shooting ability is is important. And recognizing that, which is the question you're asking, and being fine with that with yourself and saying, my confidence level is 30 yards and under, or my confidence level is 40 yards and under. You have to be disciplined enough to say, you know what? I He might be at 56. I'm just not going to take that shot. I'm going to, I'm going to work on him tomorrow. Maybe tomorrow's another day. We'll get another opportunity and you may never see him again, but having the discipline and being a good sportsman and a good woodsman and being ethical with your shooting, is number one it really is and being being that person and i know it it takes a while i think it takes years of experience and years of screwing up to say you know what i'm just not that good at at 60 yards i'm just not so i'm not going to try it out of respect for the animal and i think that's first and foremost is respect for the quarry that you seek and we wrote that in our catalog 35 years ago respect the quarry that you seek and if you respect that animal in the game enough to say I'll try him on my turf tomorrow. You know, I, we're playing his game today and he won. He didn't get close enough, but you know what? I'm going to try him again tomorrow and I'm going to do a little different. I'm going to change up a little bit. I'm going to move in on him. I'm going to, you know, play the wind a little different. I'm going to hunt him in the morning instead of the evening or whatever it may be. I, I think respect is, is number one. And, and knowing what your safe zone is, knowing what your dead zone is, and the confidence in your shooting ability. If you're not confident at 60, just don't take it. Don't take that shot. Yeah,
1: it, it, like you said earlier, you, you can never get an arrow back.
2: No, and boy does it hurt when you release it and you see it going the wrong way mm-hmm. or going under them, going over them, or hitting them in the in the tail or in the guts or something. You go, oh my god, what was I thinking? Yeah, you know, it's the worst feeling in the world. Highest of highs and lowest of lows and we've all been there you you just described it a little while ago with that deer you were trying to yeah. lace one through there you know
1: yeah it's a roller coaster <laughs> it sure is, it is. um it is. back to practice a second you talked about how you kind of scale up your practice regimen through like this early summer and into the beginning of the season but what about in-season practice do you do do you do much shooting throughout the season what does that look like because that's the thing that I, i've always thought to myself I need to do more of, but I always have struggled with sticking to it consistently and doing it enough amidst the, the chaos of the actual hunts. What's that look like for you? Shoot
2: every day. We shoot every single day throughout the season. And, and the, if I miss a day or two, I know it. I can tell it immediately, you know, because you don't get but one. Typically, you get one shot. So you, it better be a good one when you release it. So we, we shoot every day, try to stay sharp, so that when you get into a tree stand or you get into a blind, a ground blind, an elevated blind, whatever it may be, when you get in there, it's your fourth or fifth shot that day or sixth shot. Meaning you've taken one, two, three, and four, and you got dialed in and you go, damn, I'm ready. Yeah. And then you, you know that that next one's going to be a good one. And I, I stay in sharp every day, keeping that muscle memory, keeping that anchor point, making sure you're not dropping your bow arm. All those things are so important. And we shoot every single day throughout the season.
1: So what's that look like on, I don't know, let's say November 7th or something, when maybe, let's say you're planning on hunting all day, how do you, where do you, and how do you slip it, slip in that little bit of shooting? And is it is it, like you said, like a couple arrows, or do you try to get in 20 minutes, or what does that actually look like?
2: Mine's usually three or four, three or four arrows is all I shoot, but it's every single day. And if I got to do it at night in the barn with the lights on at 10 yards, that's fine. You know, or fifteen yards, whatever yeah. it may be. But typically, it's midday if we come in and grab a sandwich or something. If it's if it's early season, it's every day. You know, you got all morning or whatever. Unless the moon's right, we may go hunting some morning hunts. But we'll squeeze it in there wherever the time will permit. If we come in and grab a sandwich, you may plunk an arrow or two before you go back out. Uh, but at le- early season, it's usually in the mornings. We'll stand out in the driveway there and plunk. Sometimes it's ten or twelve arrows, but usually it's three or four. If I'm if we know we're ready. By the time the season gets here, then it's three or four arrows. If we're not ready, then it's 12 to 15, maybe 20, you know. Uh, but you, you like to hope that you're ready when a season hits. So we, we'll we squeeze it in there wherever we can throughout the day. And then, you know, when the firearm seasons start kicking in, when Missouri's firearm season starts to roll around, because we're partners with Winchester Ammunition, partners with Winchester Firearms, uh, partners with uh, Traditions Muzzleloaders, you know, you've got to be prepared for that end of things as well. So the archery tackle kind of gets put to the side for a little while, and then you start picking up the firearms. So it's easy to forget about it there for, for a moment. So if you do drop off and you don't shoot for a couple of weeks, then it takes a little bit longer because it's, it's cooling down. You got more clothes on, you're shooting with gloves, you may have a head net and so on and so forth. So all that changes the dynamic as well.
1: Yeah. Speaking of firearms, have you struggled on that side at all? Have you have any of the target panic or, you know, rushing shots or any of those things translated to the gun side?
2: I think that it is not too indifferent from the archery tackle, meaning years and years ago when we were novice hunters and just learning and had a camera over your shoulder with a little extra pressure. Yeah, we've, we've made some errand shots there as well. But uh, I will say that firearms is, is a whole nother element. Some of the same, you go through some of the same regimen as far as the breathing and and your focal point, uh, but it's a whole different, just a whole different can of worms. I enjoy shooting a firearms. We we love shooting all everything Winchester's got, and uh, love shooting the traditions that nitro fire, the muzzle loader. You know the the conservation departments have given us the times where you uh, you know kind of get to extend your season a little bit on on almost every state now. So we really enjoy the muzzle seasons, and late season is always fun because we plant a lot of food, obviously with corn and beans and biologic, and uh they're just in a different mode when the rut starts to wind down, and they're all about feeding instead of about breeding uh, it's a whole different animal once again, so I enjoy shooting and we're we're pretty disciplined at it, you know there too, you wait for that the right shot, even though a firearms will do. Some different things than the archery tackle will and you can take them in different positions on the body i still like to wait till they're broadside or quartering away place the perfect shot we pride ourselves in trying to do that with the with the firearms and uh i don't know i just i enjoy it
1: can you can you do the same thing with a gun that you did when we talked through your bow process can you walk me through what your shooting process looks like with a gun how you, you know, I'm curious about the details of how you get them into your scope and what you're thinking about and when you start to breathe or squeeze or all that stuff. What, what does that look like for you and how do you go about calming yourself and settling in in that situation? If it's any different than your bow, maybe it's the same.
2: Well, I had said early on that I was hard-headed when I when I worked through the target panic, I'm just as hard-headed with with the firearms. <laughs> I've got a certain roundhouse there and and there's a lot of guys that are tremendous long-distance shooters. We see it out west all the time where they're making 4 and 500 yard shots, you know, and 600 yard shots. I, w- where we're at in the Midwest there, typically a shot might be 150 and under, but I, if it's not you know, 150 yards, I just won't, I won't shoot at them. I'll wait till the next day or the following day or the following week. I just won't. And I prefer that at 130 and under 120 and under and, and everything we've got dialed in at a hundred yards, you know, so we know that we know the uh, trajectory, we know how flat they shoot. We know, you know, the violence that you're going to get on, on impact. Mm-hmm. So we're just pretty doggone disciplined about it. And I think that's, there too i think it takes years of practice and years of harvesting a number of animals and when you get disciplined enough and you say this is my roundhouse this is my shooting confidence this is my dead zone this is where i want them and i'm not going to shoot until they get there and if you go in with that attitude uh you you know and because they're on camera he might be out there at 180 or 200 and you go i'm just not going to shoot him until he gets to 130 and some days they do some days they don't so you've got to be a disciplined hunter in that in that respect but man, we, we pride ourselves in trying to make a good shot. The last thing we want to do is make an Aaron shot and, uh, we just wait till they get into our confidence zone.
1: Yeah. So once they're in that zone and you're getting ready, how, what do you go? How do you go about settling in, calming down? Is it just the, the deep breathing in the same situation or what does that actually look like?
2: You know, Mark, I like to heal. I call it heal. I like to heal my gun and or my elbow if i can if i have that opportunity to to heal your elbow or even your back for that matter so there is zero movement meaning you're you're really really rigid and and from the moment they get into my roundhouse even when they're quartering two, i keep the scope and the crosshairs on them the entire time and i do that so that when i when i get the shot meaning when he finally does turn broadside or quartering away i'm already settled in if you've been on him for two minutes, five minutes, 10 minutes, 20 minutes. When you get the opportunity to shoot, then it's a matter of squeezing. And we do a lot of target practice, much like we do with an archery tackle. We do the same thing with the firearms. We shoot and we shoot and we shoot. And we pride ourselves in trying to touch bullets with, you know, depending on who you're shooting with and and at different distances, different yardages and so on and so forth, different cartridges. And uh, we just, we go through that, go through that motion and that regiment. So that I don't know that it's necessarily muscle memory like it is with archery, but there's a certain regimen that you go through with your eyes and training the eye and the finger and when to squeeze and the breathing and all those different things that we go through. But I keep that crosshair on them the entire time. And then when you're finally presented with the shot, you're pretty, pretty well calmed down. You're settled in and all you got to do is squeeze and pull the trigger.
1: Yeah. So we, we started this conversation, Terry. Uh digging up some dirt and talking through a couple of your more painful experiences with the shot. What about the flip side? Is there any hunt you can recall on the archery side again, where you were in the moment, you were fully in control, you did everything right, the shot was perfect, and and you can recall that and... I'm curious to hear that story. Here, I'd love to hear about a time when you did it all right and what that felt like, and what that process looked like. Um, I think that can be just as helpful to understand in detail as the as the painful missed opportunities sometimes as well.
2: Well, I, oddly enough, nobody remembers those. They, they all remember <laughs> the bad. They all remember the bad ones, but there are you know there are dozens and dozens of those too and and i'm not i'm not trying to brag or say we're good or anything i'm just saying that we have is way way more good ones than bad ones it's just that the bad ones stick with you and they stick in your mind and you wish you could have it back but uh we've had some really really great hunts with great deer over the years and killed a lot of nice bucks and and i can't tell you how many does i've shot in in my career and, and I try to pride myself on making as many good shots with the doe as I do with a buck. I, I, you know, I, I really, really cherish the fact that we've got an ample supply and our deer density is high and we're able to do that year after year after year. And I, I enjoy shooting does, but man, we've had a ton of really good bucks that we've killed and made the perfect shot. And the feeling is, is one of yes. Finally, all the work, everything that you put into it, all that effort, all that practice, all that you did. And even the chess match. I mean, it's not easy to kill a, a, a good buck in Missouri, you know, with consistency and regularity. And, you know, because, you know, we do what we do, we're trying to kill four and five good bucks a year. And it's like it's the, the race of all races. It's a it's a marathon trying to do it because it's it's like trying to hit the lottery three, four five times. It yeah. just don't happen that way. So consistency and killing them year after year after year is, is not easy. And and I'm not complaining whatsoever. I, we love doing it. We love spending the time. We love the chess match, but I have had an ample supply of really good deer that have come into our roundhouse or into that circle, make a good shot. The deer runs over 70 yards, falls over on camera. And, uh, I just, you know, the rest is history. As they say, I had one deer in particular, that was 162 or four inch nine point. He was a 10 the previous year. I didn't get a shot at him the previous year, but he came in, presented us with an opportunity, watched him for an hour and a half on camera. He, he stayed out there. He finally got in there, opened a the window on a blind, and boom, he was gone. I didn't get a shot at him, and that was prior to Thanksgiving. Came back after Thanksgiving, did the same exact thing. Uh, he came into our roundhouse, into the dead zone, if you will, and a doe boogered, opened a window, dough boogered, and uh. he stood there. And, uh, and then he, and then he bolted just a little bit and make a long story short, put it, put a great shot on him and he ran 60, 70 yards, fell over dead. So there are a lot of those too with firearms and with archery tackle. And, uh, I just, when you do it, the feeling is one of, uh, I don't, I don't know how to describe it other than somewhat of an ecstasy, if you will, because all the work you went into it, it's kind of a, a big deflation. You All the air comes out of your lungs and there's such a relief and such a yoke or a burden off your shoulders that uh, you just you can't describe it. Words, I don't think words truly describe it. When they go down and tip over on camera, man, oh, man, there is no better feeling.
1: Yeah. So when you look back over the last 20, 30 years or whatever it's been, Terry, and you go back and you think about all these various um low points, mishaps that happened along the way, and you, like you said, you've had different coaches talk to you, you've had different friends talk to you, I'm sure your your brothers talk to you, your family and other folks have all probably offered maybe unsolicited advice at times too. Um, what has been, if you can think back on any one most important piece of advice that you got, was there one thing or one change you made or one one liner that's helped you the most, or, or something that that you can look back on and say, yeah, you know what, that was that was important. Does anything stand out when you look over those years and when it comes to helping you handle these situations, shoot better, deal with the pressure better, whatever part of this you want to tackle?
2: One year, and Mark pointed this out. We we watched it over and over on on video, which we talked about early on, was having somebody film you, and I was really really gripping the riser like extremely hard, like torquing and, and gripping it way, way harder than needed to be. You know, so many guys shoot open palm and, uh, you know, it's easy to get caught up in that moment where you grip. And I think maybe in the heat of the moment, you kind of lose sight of the fact that you're even doing
1: it, yeah. you know,
2: because you don't want to, you don't want to screw up. So you're gripping just that much tighter and you're, you're talking and doing some things that you wouldn't normally do. And Mark had pointed that out one year and, and it's just easy to get, caught up. But that was one of the things that was very, very helpful was just watching it on camera. Uh, And I think everybody can do that because almost everybody's either got an iPhone or an Android now and the cameras are spectacular and you can shoot them in slow-mo or you can shuttle back and forth and watch what you're doing. And I would say, take it from different angles, a frontal and both sides and then maybe from the back and see if your bow arm's dropping and so on and so forth and see if you're gripping, see if you're anchoring the same way each and every time. But the, I guess the, you know, I don't know. I really don't have one in particular. I do believe that the harvesting, a lot of animals has helped more than anything. You know, when you start shooting, you know, and I'm going to get into, say, you know, hundreds, when you shoot hundreds of animals or hundreds of deer, then you should be, you know, over those, those nerves, even though you're not, you should be. But it does help. It helps you go through the right motion, the right regimen at the right time, and that you get your brain process right. You know, there's a certain set of thought processes that you go through, which we we've described, and we went into that. And I think a guy should go through that regimen each and every time. And the other way to do it, if you see a doe, pretend it's a a buck. If you see a fawn, pretend it's an adult doe, and go how where am I going to kill this at? How am I going to kill it? Go through the motions, and it's about getting your feet right on a platform. Where am I going to have to get my butt? You know, if I want to, if I want to shoot this deer, you are left-handed or right-handed? We call it, I call it, into your hand and away from your hand. If you're a bull rider, they love when the, when a buck or bull turns into their hand or away from their hand. You know, and and that's what I talk about all the time. Whether you're turkey hunting, it's about getting your fanny switched around there. If you're a lefty or a righty, and archery is not too indifferent. If you know he's going to be walking one side of the tree or the other, then you better be getting your feet turned. You know, so that you can make that shot and you can turn into your hand or away from your hand a lot easier than you can the other direction.
1: Hmm. Yeah, that's a great point. So what about the flip side? That being the worst advice you've been given? Because again, I'm sure you've gotten some of that too. Is there anything that you've heard over the years that that you recognize right away as being horrible advice or maybe you took the advice and then down the road learned was not such a great suggestion?
2: You know, we get critiqued a lot, and being in the public eye, you're going to get that. So you you take each with a grain of salt. But so many people have gotten things that they tell you you should be doing, and the majority of it is is not the best of advice. You know, it may be a novice that hasn't been hunting very very long. You know, if it's you know if it's uh, Don Kiske, Lee Lakoski, Jay Gregory, Mark Drury, uh, you know Levi. it it, it, those guys know what the hell they're talking about so when they when they say something you really do want to listen and you want to go okay thank you i appreciate that uh but boy beyond that if you start getting critique from the average hunter and i'm not trying to dismiss any of it because some of those guys are really good archers but you got to kind of take it with a grain of salt and say hey what works for me what what really is helpful for me in my scenario and my situation and because we have so many different scenarios tree stand ground blind elevated blind you know it's you never know where we're going to be sitting you better be prepared and i think preparation has got a lot to do with that i i sit down and i practice all the time because oftentimes we're sitting on a a chair in a ground blind or we'll be sitting on a chair in an elevated blind or we'll be sitting down i'll sit down and shoot in my tree stand because you can heal your back against the tree trunk and you're just a lot more a lot more solid now when you're sitting down it limits you you know, he, he, he better be either in front of you or moving around to one side of you, because the other side, you're not going to be able to get a shot. Then you got to get up and you got to move, you got to twist your body all the way around 180. So it's about knowing where the deer are going to be and about knowing what trails they might be on. But, uh, you know, preparation is so important and we've had some bad advice and <laughs> we get that on a regular basis via email and we thank each and every one of them for their advice. Mm-hmm. But, uh, I can't come out with one specifically.
1: Yeah, like you said, there's there's a whole lot of examples to pull from. I'm sure.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Now a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto, do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. You ever get that feeling you're stuck inside staring at screens and a primal urge kicks in? You crave wide open spaces, fresh air, the chance to connect with the land? Well, maybe it's time to find your own piece of the wild. But searching for property can be a maze. That's where Land.com comes in. They got millions of listings across the country, from mountain ranches to hidden fishing holes. Their search tools are like a seasoned guide helping you narrow down what you want. Land.com isn't just about buying and selling. It's about finding a place to hunt, fish, explore, or simply sit by a campfire and listen to the crickets. So head over to land.com today to turn one day into today. Because trust me, there's nothing quite like the feeling of standing on your own piece of earth. I got to ask you this,
1: uh, Terry. Uh, Zoom out, I guess. Zooming out here a little bit. If I were to look back on my past kind of, tough year that i mentioned at the top shooting was a big part of it but tied to that i think was also expectations or pressure or something that ramped up and probably led to some of the shooting issues and also led to a little bit it periods kind of losing some of the joy of things uh i i've heard from a number of other people not just people that kind of work in this world like we do but even just diehard deer hunters that love it so much, that spend so much time, that's it's their obsession. They sink so much time and money and energy into it that they too have developed these expectations and these pressures on themselves and they've found themselves, you know, on November 7th during what's supposed to be the best time of the Whitetail year, but instead they're miserable because something's not going right or because something went wrong or they're they they have not filled their tag or their buddies have all killed giants and they can't or whatever the thing is. Or someone Critique their buck on Instagram, or who knows what it could be these days. Um, I, I think this is something that I'm beginning to hear more and more often from folks have Do you have any thoughts on dealing with those types of issues? Have you ever experienced that yourself? Have, have the expectations, or the pressures or what other people think or anything like that? Has, does any of that resonate? Have you dealt with that? Do you have any thoughts or lessons on how to work through that kind of thing? You know, it's funny you ask that because
2: we we have that pressure each and every year, particularly in the outdoor industry, and you're you're expected to perform, and you're expected to perform at a higher level because that's what you do, and that's what your you know that's what your aspirations are. But man, oh man, going into a season, you know, we target certain deer because you know, number one, they've got to be mature anymore. And then, and there's no perfect science to that de- determining whether they're five and a half, six and a half, seven and a half. Sometimes you can make mistakes and you don't even realize you did, but you know, we're going to target a certain deer going into the season. And if you just don't see him and you don't get an opportunity, you know, you're not going to kill him obviously. Uh, and then you're only as good as the area that you hunt, or you're only as good as the spot that you're hunting. You can't kill a two hundred. If you don't have a two mm-hmm. it's just that simple. If the, if your deer top out in the mid one forties or one fifties and you're, you're after a deer like that, that's, that's just it. If you kill that deer, you should be extremely happy that you killed a 145 inch deer, 150 inch deer. If that's what your territory, that's what your neck of the woods or that's what your, uh, area provides. And I think our industry as a whole, back when we started Hell, you didn't see. You didn't know what anybody shot. If you know, there was a, a few television shows between uh, Mossy Oak and uh, you know. It wasn't as readily available as it is now with digital media. You can find out instantaneously what people are killing and how big they are. And and it, I I do believe that puts added pressure on everyone nationwide because we all want to kill a big deer and we all want to you know enjoy it with our buddies. And and when your buddies are killing deer and you're not. Man, that's a, that's a sick feeling. I mean, you you go, why can't I, I can't even get a sniff of one of these. I can't see one. What's the problem here? What's wrong with me? Why, what am I doing? So I I don't know how you would get past that other than to say that because we've been doing it for so long and we've had uh, a number of different team members over the years, some guys will go through a tough season for a year or two. And then by golly, the next year, all of a sudden they're sitting on top. So it's a, cyc- a cyclic event. Some years are going to be better than others. I think some years fall in line with the rut in different states a little bit better with different moon phases and all those things. So some guys are going to be blessed and some guys are not. And it's, it's not uncommon to see that guy that historically has struggled all of a sudden to kill a giant one year. And you have to stay after it. you got to be persistent. You can't give up and somehow work through those low spots uh it's a matter of enjoying what the other guy killed. You know if your buddy killed a 180, you got to be happy for him, you know, jealous as you may be and say, "Damn, I wish I had to killed that deer." Uh-huh. You still have to be happy for the guy that's really worked hard and uh and put all the time and the effort into it. So, uh it, it's not easy. I know the pressure is on us each and every year. It's a big chess match, and some years we we win, it's checkmate. Some years we don't.
1: Do you do you... I think you kind of alluded to this, but do you even feel that way personally yourself sometimes, even though you've killed so many great deer, do you still find yourself sometimes sitting there and end of October and seemingly everyone in the team's killed a buck and you haven't seen a shooter in eight weeks or something and what's your self talk look like what's your how do you how do you psych yourself back up? Is it just simply reminding yourself of the past like you just mentioned?
2: Well, it would always seem that no matter what I killed. Mark would kill one 10 or 15 inches bigger. (laughs) (laughs) Just seriously. And his, his, he had spots where their early season was usually good. He'd have, he'd have big deer on, you know, biologic non-typical clover early season. And he'd bop one right out of the gate. So then the pressure was on immediately, you know, and you're like, okay, my farm, because we have so much ag around us, it doesn't get good until middle of October, end of October, once the crops start coming out. So, I was always a a late starter at the all-star break, if you will. Uh And then I would be a strong finisher, but man, it's a tough pill to swallow when he gets two or three good ones under his belt, right out, (laughs) right out of the gate. And you're trying to keep up, you know? So uh, there's always pressure and, and we pull for each other, no matter what. I'm always, I'm always thankful when he kills a couple good ones right off the bat, you know, early season, because it takes a little bit of pressure off as far as, you know, filling the shows and coming up with enough content, but it's added pressure in the fact that I'm trying to you know find a big deer and and get on one and kill it because he's always got a big one somewhere. So, I know some some way, some shape or form, he's got a giant so, on some little bitty fifty acre parcel that he got permission on or something. You know, and he <laughs> and he went in and carved out a food plot, and this 180 shows up. You know, so yeah.
1: some people, right? They're always always in the money. A, a horseshoe. Four leaf clover, rabbit's
2: foot, you name it. He's got he's got all that stuff in his pocket, his backpack. But he's he's just he's at another level, much like uh, Lee Kosky and some of those other guys. He Mark's just one hell of a whitetail hunter. He really is. He's a gr- tremendous shot too, you know. But yeah. we don't go. His misses are his errand shots. We just never have. You got to.
1: <laughs> he's somehow has more control in the editor's box, huh? We got to get that changed.
2: <laughs> oh yeah. Oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah, those shows get sometimes get proofed when I'm out of town or (laughs) on the farm or something. Yeah.
1: Funny how that happens. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. Um,
2: But it's all good. It's all fun. I will say we've been really very, very blessed and very fortunate. The most humbling experience in the world is to grow up in the outdoor industry and be blessed enough to harvest some really, really good deer and and try to help someone else learn. You know, that's what our, our biggest aspiration. And we have not talked about Deercast, but that was the whole reason we, we came up with the app, uh, in Deercast.
1: Yeah. So what's, what's new with Deercast? I know you guys have updated it this year. What, uh, what should we be looking for?
2: Wow. It's, it's just really, really, uh, been fun. It's been a labor of love. If you will, we've been two years, we were supposed to release this last year. We didn't get it done. Uh, but it did give us time to do some ad- additional testing with the beta series. And we think we've got it down now where it's, it's pretty doggone sweet. We, we added mapping to the original deer cast, obviously, is the movement predictor, which tells you, you know, the, uh, when the whitetails are more most likely to be up on their feet and moving during daylight hours. And then in addition to that, it's got deer cast track, which helps you find your deer, recover your animal. It's, it's got a news feed. It's got our entire library and, and the weather data. So we added mapping to that. And with that mapping, we added rain stations where you can put a rain station on your food plot, and it will tell you the uh, the precip that you that fallen. It's a it's a uh, an estimate, if you will, until after the precip falls. You know, if it says you're going to get three tenths of rain, and then after it has time to update once the rain has fallen, you know, you may have got four tenths, you may have got twenty five hundreds, but it's awfully nice knowing when you got rain coming you know, what the next 72 looks like and when you can get your food plots in. And then if you've gotten rain, you know, you say, oh, man, you may live four hours from your farm or two hours and you go, hell, I got an inch of rain on my farm, which is awesome. So it's got that. It's also got wind check. The wind check is phenomenal. It tells you, you know, what wind direction it will be coming from. It's got a scent cone on there. That scent cone changes speed and it changes size depending on the speed and the velocity of the wind. You know, one to five is one cone, uh, six to ten is another cone, ten to fifteen and so on and so forth, those scent streams change and the uh it's just really trying to show you, you know, exactly what's happening when you're sitting in a tree stand. And then there's some information that goes along with each and every one of them where the sweet spot is. You know, I like to hunt seven to eight mile an hour winds. Mark likes to hunt ten to eleven mile an hour winds. So Uh, it's very, very informative when it comes to that sense stream. And and let's face it, a deer lives and dies by their nose. It's got parcel data. It's got radar. It's got uh, just every single thing you would want as a whitetail hunter. And, you know, uh, food plot area, uh, it will path track. It's got distances. Every single thing you might need as a whitetail guy is in this mapping features. And, and man, oh, man, we we just strongly feel like people are going to enjoy it. And, uh, I think the more they use it, the more they're going to want to use it.
1: Very cool. And still deer cast track. You've got that tool on there as well too, right?
2: Yes. You know, Mark, everybody tells you how to kill them, but nobody tells you how to find them. Yeah. And we said, you know what, let's try and help people find them. And we we've, we've taken a number and I don't know how many hundreds of of deer hits that we've got on there, but we've got two other guys that will tell you a little bit about it. One is tracker, John Engelken. And the other one is uh Bobby Culberson down at Terra Wildlife. Those guys are tremendous trackers, and they too and Mark and I too both give you some insight on how long to wait, what vitals you might have hit, what arteries you may have hit uh, you know and when you hit this artery, let's say liver lung or or double lung or heart lung or 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 guts and and liver, how long you need to wait for that deer to expire, and how far they may have went and and what other arteries you might have cut so and, and there's a 3D model in there that will go uh, quartering to broadside, quartering away so that you can kind of say, uh-oh, he was he was quartering to me just slightly, so where did my arrow go through there? And that 3D model will kind of give you an idea of what you would have hit on that particular uh, shot. So all of those are cached away in there, and you can pull them up and take a look at them and, and say, you know what? I was going to give him 30 minutes. I need to give him four hours. Or I was going to give him four hours. I need to give him eight. So it's uh it's extremely informational when it comes to those hits.
1: Yeah, I, I really like that. That's that's come in handy a couple of times, just even when it's something you feel like pretty confident I know what I should do in this situation, it's always nice to have a second opinion. And, you know, sometimes it's too late at night to call a friend or whatever and being able to go on there and see how it went down for, for one of the guys on your team and see your thoughts on it. I, I found that pretty pretty nice to have. So nice nicely done. Good stuff.
2: You know, and because of the way things are nowadays, Mark, I I don't know why everyone isn't trying to self-film because we have the luxury of watching the hit over and over and over and over. And some of them will watch, you know, three or four dozen times to say, you know, is he dead or should we give him more time or what did we hit? Blah, 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 blah. But a guy sitting in a tree by himself and makes a shot, oftentimes you're not 100 percent certain and i'd say more more times than not you're not exactly certain where you hit him mm-hmm. and how he was standing whether it was he quartering to, was he broad but boy if if you have the opportunity or the luxury to watch it on camera there is no no better feeling than to watch it over and over and over and then make that decision but you know it's it's easy to easy to guess but if you have the opportunity to do some self-filming then i would highly encourage it
1: yeah so so helpful so last question for you terry what uh What's in store for you this season? Do you Are you feeling good about what's coming up? Is there a special deer you're hoping to get your eyes on this year? what uh, What's deer season 2022 going to look like for you?
0: Well, uh,
2: last year I felt really, really good about things because we had, you know, a number of different bucks, uh, several up and comers and so on and so forth and killed a good one last year, killed two good ones last year on my farm. And so did Forrest, my farm manager, Forrest Bond, and killed a couple of good ones there on the farm. So we had a really, really banner year last year. But with that being said, none of them made it through. There was a lot of, a lot of deer that got taken in and around my farm and, and they just disappeared. So we really don't have anything to hunt this year. I'm hoping something shows up (laughs) (laughs) other than a few does. We'll be, we'll be doe shooting for a while. But with that said, I've got a couple of good ones over in Illinois, same deer I've been hunting in Illinois for the last three years, haven't got them dead. And, uh, we'll, we'll go after them and try to harvest one or two of those. If we get the opportunity, we killed a, a really good deer over there last year and shot it with a crossbow a mission crossbow. And, uh, I know we catch a lot of grief over that too. Uh, we didn't talk about this at all. I'm getting to a point in my, with my age, I tore a rotator, uh, couple years ago and I'm, I milked my way through it last year, kind of nursed it along, but it's, it's really, really bad this year. And I'm too big a sissy to go get it fixed. <laughs> so everybody I've talked to said it's the worst pain they've ever had when they got their rotator operated on. Eef. So I've been, I can't, you can't put a belt on, you can't, you know, get your seat belts, You can't brush your teeth. You can't comb your hair. You know, it's one of those deals. It's like a butcher knife in your shoulder. So Yikes. I, that's an issue, but that's why that's why God made crossbows, I I do believe.
1: <laughs> so that's the crossbows working pretty well for you then now?
2: Yes. Those things, my goodness, they've made them now that they're just, and we'll probably get hammered because we talk about it. But for those that, that need it and have shoulder issues, my golly, it's they're fun to shoot, and we really, really thoroughly enjoy We like just target practicing with it. I mean, Forrest and I spent a great, much like our firearms and much like the archery tackle, we spend a lot of time shooting a crossbow and have become very, very proficient in it. There too, we know what our roundhouse is. We're not going to take any errand shots at a hundred yards, 80 yards. And a lot of guys can, a lot of guys will, but we try to keep it, you know, reasonable. And and we know if they're in our roundhouse, there's pretty good chance we're going to be successful. And we're very, very adamant about that as well. But boy, are they fun to shoot. I don't know if you've ever tinkered with one, but man, they're a blast.
1: Yeah. Yeah. My, my dad has some eyesight issues and, because of that, he, you know, he tried shooting a regular compound bow and and just really struggled with that. So a a crossbow ended up being great for him because there's the scope and he can really see things well through that. And so that was a game changer for him and it lets him, you know, participate in archery season now, which is, you know, a godsend. So it's been, it's been fun to shoot those and help him with that. and, And I'll never crap on crossbows because there's, there's a lot of people that wouldn't be able to get outside and enjoy hunting the way we do if they didn't have a tool like that. So I'm all, I'm all for people being able to, get out there and enjoy it uh, however they need to
2: well i shot 72 pounds for years and years and years and then as as i started to get a little older i dropped down to 67 and then 64 and then 62 and then 59 58 57 i shot 53 last year with a bad shoulder and i got it back the other day i'm pulling 49 pounds and i can't draw it it hurts so so bad i literally cannot draw at 49 so I'm going to drop it down to 45 and then 42 and I I probably won't go lower than that, but if I can't draw it, I can't draw it, you know? So I'll, I'll be shooting a crossbow if I, if I have to, but regardless, it is what it is. As you start to get a little older, things change. And as people find that out, they go, you know what? I'm not what I once was, and it wasn't much to begin with. So (laughs) you have to come to the come to the reckoning and say I, there's certain things you just got to do now if i go get it operated on in the off season and get it fixed i might be able to get it back but uh so i'm right now i can't draw 49 pounds which is pretty sad to be mm-hmm. honest and i was pulling 53 last year killed two killed the biggest year of my life last year at 53 pounds so wow
1: well, t- I, I hope that whether it's with a compombo or crossbow, Terry, uh, I hope a big one shows up in Missouri for you. I hope uh, the Illinois buck finally meets his maker, and I uh, hope you have a great season.
2: And likewise, I hope you do too. I, I love your stuff, always have. I've always enjoyed visiting with you. I, I really, really am always enthralled with everything you do. I hope you continue hunting with your dad, and I hope he kills a monster with a crossbow.
1: I hope so too. <laughs> Thank you, Terry, for, for making time to do this. I really appreciate it.
2: Thank you so much. Anytime you need anything just give me a holler.
1: All right, and that is a wrap. Big thanks again to Terry for speaking with us. Hope you guys enjoyed this one. As we just mentioned, everything they're doing over with the Deercast app is is really great. I personally enjoy it. I follow it. I've got the app. Their YouTube channel's packed with great content too, so check that out. And um stay tuned. FYI, speaking of YouTube, a new show that I filmed last year for Meat Eater will be launching soon on the Meat Eater YouTube channel. So if you're not already, head on over and subscribe to the Meat Eater YouTube channel to see my wild 2021 season and the crazy adventures I went on. It should be launching sometime in September. So keep an eye out for that. And In the meantime, we've got our new waterfowl show, Duck Lure, is airing right now. There's a fishing show, The Canadian Angle. The new episodes are coming up right now. And lots more to come over the fall. So, uh, man, if you got a little free time, there's no shortage of great hunting and fishing content out there for you to check out. So you can find it in the Meat Eater YouTube channel at TheMeatEater.com. Follow me on Instagram at hunt, Or uh, just get outside, shoot your bow, and forget all this internet shit. Get better at shooting. Get ready for a great hunting season. You guys are the best. Thanks for tuning in. And until next time, stay tuned. Wired to hunt.
0: I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You